guys, welcome to the Paddler's Playbook. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Podcast Land. Thermal convection, man. These dudes almost killed me. You know, redfish are really dumb. How do you take your marsh dump? This fool used all my toilet paper. Bro, Well, now that Drew's done dragging this on. TPP15. You gonna get a dozen shrimp? Hey, you throwing that cast net again this weekend? Oh, good lord. I almost died. I do not want to paddle that far. Once again, he almost died. I'm not waking up at the butt crack dawn. I'll see you at the launch around noon. I love wake baits. Haven't you ever heard them chatter? Let me double back here first. And now, a word from Saltside Jet. Oh, yeah. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the paddle. Check out our Friends of Facebook land because we are live today and I've got to also give a shout out to all of our podcast listeners in podcast land as Drew would say it. Hello podcast land. So ladies and gentlemen, I'm your host today. Chris that good fish Lewis and we're going to set it up and we're going to set it up right today. We've got an awesome episode and I've got two rod builders waiting backstage to talk to everybody about the ins and outs and what to look for when building a brand new custom rod, whether it be for inshore or for the freshwater waters. Freshwater waters, freshwater lakes, river streams, you know, all those things. Um, there is a crazy, crazy name for this episode. You guys will see it whenever we post it out there in podcast land. and Honestly, I didn't think Drew was going to use <laughs> the name. I mean, I kind of just threw it out there, just being silly. But ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Two Rods, One Angler. For shame, for shame, for shame, man. Hey, I want to say what's up to everybody that's already joined us right now. Um, we've got Terrell and Kevin already popping up there with some comments guys make sure that you're rolling them through okay all night long while we're up we're, while we're live we'll be answering questions the rod builders will be answering questions now guys you probably already know one of the rod builders that we're going to have on tonight but the other one you may not have heard of he's one of my really good friends from alabama uh one of the guys that i usually fish with whenever i head out towards florida we used to have a um a yearly boondoggle that we we would all get together and just act a fool while we were fishing, just acting like uh, regular old kayaking brothers, you know. So, um, let's let's go ahead and get things started, man. I'm gonna go ahead and ask ask these dudes to the casting couch for two rods, one angler. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Drew and Rob Brown. Now, let, Drew, come on in, man. Come on. Ah! In. There you go. You guys <laughs> thought. Thought you were going to not have me on this episode, huh? Thought since hey. it was just Chris doing the intro, I wasn't going to be here. So, Wrong. ladies and gentlemen, welcome Overslot Rob, also known as The Champ, <laughs> a.k.a. Robert Brown. Um, Robert Brown comes to us from Alabama, somewhere northern Alabama, right? Yeah. Somewhere okay. closer towards Tennessee. Where'd you say again? Huntsville. Huntsville. Oh, Huntsville. Huntsville. It's not Huntsville. It's Huntsville. 
Oh. Huntsville. Yeah. Hunts don't Vegas. We, don't we have a Huntsville here? Huntsville, yeah. Texas? Yeah, Hunts Vegas. Hunts Vegas. So, um, yo, Rob. Rob is one of uh, the – in that, that area of, of the United States, Rob is well-known for uh, not only his, his skills and whenever it comes to angling, but also as a kayaker and a rod builder. Um, Rob, tell us where you got your start, man. What, what Drew likes to ask is tell us about your most memorable fishing memory. Start there. My most memorable fishing memory. Well, it would have to be on a Sunday in April when I was. Damn, he's going like specific. It's like Sunday it. in I April. Like it. The sun was shining. The birds were chirping. Yeah, the <laughs> seventy-three degrees with sixty-five yeah. percent humidity. And we're sitting on the east side of St. Joe Bay. Uh, everybody's catching redfish, but me. Uh, we're heading back to the launch. This is my first redfish tournament ever. We came down to meet up with uh, Chris and the guys out of uh, fishing out of Panacea, Florida. And uh, last cast on the way back, and I just happened to nail a redfish, and it put me in second place for my first ever redfish tournament. And after that, I didn't care if I ever caught another green fish again in my life. The green fish is just something I catch in between trips to the coast. Hey, you know what, man? I am honored to be a part of this memory because you're saying that one of your most memorable fishing memories was fishing Port St. Joe Bay over there by Redfish Cut. Oh, yeah. I mean, because what we finished first and second place in the Redfish Division, we had somebody finish in the Trout Division. I mean, we just caught fish. And just Everybody was on the board the whole weekend. Yeah, I mean, you know, like I said, go to your first Redfish Tournament, cash a check. So you're not even mad that you had to sleep outside? No, man. It was. I didn't mind. That's, I like sleeping in the hammock. So it was. It was all good. Like I said, I had. A, I had a blast, and you know, that's growing up in Florida. I never really. I never fished inshore. I mean, it sounds weird, but uh, my dad was freshwater. I mean, we we fished to put food on the table, and if we went over to the coast, it was just to, you know, we normally just fish for mullet. And uh, so when I got into kayak fishing, that's actually when I actually got into inshore fishing. So I had to move to, I grew up in Florida, but I had to move to Alabama to go learn how to inshore fish. So, but I mean, it's, it's been a blast. I love it. Every chance I get, I go down there and, and just go out and have fun, man. Love hey, Drew, did you, did you notice something kind of strange about that um, last portion that he mentioned? That he had to move to Alabama uh, to inshore fish. He fishes for mullet. How I, I fish. For- I did hear that, and I wanted to ask: Are you fishing for mullet, or are you cast netting for mullet? I can't throw a cast net to save my life. So, all right. So you're gonna, this, you're gonna get your first lesson right now. <laughs> so you know, you see those people. You have the fiberglass poles. There's like, you know, they take place of the cane pole. It's just a breakdown fiberglass pole. So all you do is you take a fiberglass pole and you run. It's almost like a sabiki rig, but you take white uh, plastic worms and you cut them up in discs and you put them on, you know, we have five or six hooks, put them on there and you stand in about waist deep water and you have uh, oatmeal and you ball up the oat, wet the oatmeal, make a little ball and you throw it out there at your cork and as the oatmeal falls down it comes apart so the uh, mullet come in to eat the oatmeal 
and they get hooked, they'll grab. Oh, they're just so they're just tearing up everything, yeah, and then they'll grab one of those little white discs. Yeah, you basically just get like a feeding frenzy of mullet going. Whenever you catch one, sometimes you catch two or three. You just turn around and just walk to the beach, take them off, break their necks, throw them in the cooler, and go back at it. Vicious, well, dude! Just break their neck. <laughs> break their neck. Break them and bleed them out right there, and then usually. Usually my mom, she would have the two-burner Coleman stove going and fire it up, and you know we'd have lunch, hush puppies, and fresh fried mullet right there on the beach. Damn. Br- brown sugar or mixed berry oatmeal? Which one? Which one works better? <laughs> uh, we always go with plain. I don't know. Plain. Okay. Yeah, just plain Jane oatmeal. You know mullet, mullet. <laughs> mullet. You know mullet doing mullet things. Mullet yeah. doing mullet things, man. That's We've right. had. We've had a few requests for that shirt, Chris. We, we, I know, we, we I know. may have to make the mullet doing mullet thing shirt. I agree. I agree. I think it needs to be. Uh, and we should have like Rob's face with his, his curly hair, you know, on that on that shirt, man. Mullet doing mullet thing. Just, just mullet out there jumping like, hey, look at me. Just, you know, mullet stuff. <laughs> I'm a mullet. So that's, uh, that's pretty interesting, man, because I thought if people were catching mullet, they were catching it by cast net. I never thought that. Um, you would catch them by hook, unless your name is Abel Zuniga, who tends to catch them cast with, at mullets. Yeah, uh, with a with a jig. So you said you had to move to Alabama to really get into fishing, and that's also when you got into kayaking. Yeah, yeah. When I came up here, um, moved to moved to Huntsville, and uh, actually lived next to a river, and just kind of it was really when kayak fishing was just kind of getting popular i mean on facebook there was not any groups or anything um and so i went and purchased a used boat from one of the livery places here it was a little 250 dollar uh pescador 9.5 and uh Ooh, that's a little boat <laughs> rob's not a little guy either yeah and so um got it out there and you know, I had my milk crate and my Shakespeare combos and started catching brim and caught my first smallmouth. And once I once I caught a smallmouth, I was like, oh, there might be something to this. And eventually told my wife, I was like, you know what? I think for my 40th birthday, I'm going to save up and I'm going to actually buy me like a, a verified fishing kayak. So I did my research and, you know, like I said, they were just starting to come out. The Kusa, uh, I set my eye on a big rig because, you know, I wanted something with some stability. And so that's what I did for my 40th birthday. My midlife crisis wasn't a sports car. It was a, a Jackson big rig. So and I had a big rig for seven years, six years. And, you know, I've been. Now, that, that may have cultivated your uh, love for kayaking, but that's not where your, your kayaking really grew into because not only did you start just paddling around a pescador 9.5 and then buying a big rig but didn't you become a portion of the national jackson team at one point uh yeah i um i got asked by the local jackson dealer here you know if i'd like to you know rip his uh outfitter his company little business and i was like yeah sure you know i mean like i said it was all i was all new to it i wasn't you know, I didn't know about the pro staffing and everything. So you know, I just go out there and just talk to people on the water, let them see my boat and everything. And um, the Forestwood Cup came to, to Huntsville Fish Lake Wheeler one year. And so I was just working the booth, helping out. And 
I happened to meet uh, uh, Eric Jackson, and after working the booth, um, you know, we kind of chatted a little bit. And in the following February, their first stop was on Lake Gunnersville for um, the force for the FLW guys. And I worked the weekend again, but it was just EJ and I. And then at the end of the weekend, Eric asked me had I ever thought about being on the Jackson National or the Jackson Fishing Team. And I told him, I said, honestly, I said, I am not a pro staff guy. I am not a tournament fisherman. I said, I'm just somebody that's like, likes to go out there and fish. He's like, oh, you're perfect. You know, people can relate to you and everything. So, yeah, I mean, EJ asked me to join the fishing team. So, you know, that's how I got on the, the Jackson uh, team, did regional pro staff, and then got asked to go to the national pro staff. And then you know what happened, Drew? What's that? <laughs> That's when that's when EJ got the boot from Jackson. They he hired Rob, and then they said, "No, no, no, something's wrong uh, with you, EJ. Uh, let's get this, let's get this guy out of here." Yeah. I traveled with him for two years to the FLW events, working, you know, just being a booth babe, showing off the, the Jackson stuff and showing off the goods. Yeah, and then after a while, you know, I just. I just kind of got burned out with all the taking pictures and posting. I mean, I, I enjoyed it. Don't get me wrong. I enjoy meeting people and talking about fishing and kayak fishing. And, you know, I mean, that's, it seems to be, that's something that most everybody can relate to is not necessarily kayak fishing, but fishing in general, whether it's when they were a kid growing up or, you know, retirees. I mean, it's, it's generational, man. So it's just fun talking to people. And but I just kind of got tired of the, you know, the social media aspect and, you know, you have the little tribes and stuff going on. It's like, you know what, man, I just want to go fish. So this is a great segue because you're talking about the social media aspect and also tournament fishing. And right now there's a real hot button subject out there that's really eating a lot of people up on, on the Texas coast mainly. But I know it, it, it affects people all over the nation. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is cheating in tournament fishing okay it happens on the boat side it happens on the kayak side shit i'm pretty sure it happens on the kids side i've seen it i've seen it happen in kid events and that is shameful parents shame on you so i'm gonna go ahead and throw it over to drew here for a second because i know he's been a little heated about this over the past couple of days and he's got a few words to say it's it's for those that know what's going on, like there's there's no need for us to name names and, and, and everything. But Chris, do you think that if someone is caught cheating in a tournament, the tournament owes it to everyone else who fished in the tournament to let them know why somebody was disqualified? So I have not had much experience with cheating on the Gulf Coast and saltwater tournaments, but I do get to hear a lot about the um, the freshwater tournaments. And whenever a guy gets caught cheating in a freshwater event, it hits the airwaves like a freaking just what the shock wave. It's man. everywhere. Yeah, it's the, everywhere. The community, the community knows. Everything and that's going on with this part of it. There's a couple of reasons why I think it, it happens that way. And Rob, you can go ahead and, and solidify this thought uh, process or not. One, um, I think people in the bass world are way more respectful of their fishery. And they really freaking hate cheaters, man. 
they just can't stand it whenever somebody gets out there and cheats. I mean, we don't like it either uh, on the salt side, but um, the bass world is really, really bad about it. And two, y'all have got like 3,000 people at every single event. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's not like us where we have 100 anglers. Y'all have got thousands, and there's trails. And you've, you've got people that are traveling from state to state to state to state. And sometimes they might travel 13, 14, 15 weeks out of a 52-week year. Yeah. So it's it's not, you know, just like us here where we have a couple fishing segments and series here and there. The freshwater world is much bigger yeah. um, than, than that. I think, and you see it too now, you get a lot more visibility with, you know, with KBN, of course, you know, KBN has been around for a while, but with the Hobie BOS and the you know, BASS entering the kayak game, you know, you just, you get a lot more, you're getting that national coverage. And so a lot more people out there. And I mean, and honestly, if you watch any kind of kayak fishing forum, I mean, there's people out there waiting to sharpshoot everything that you do and being a tournament director, you know, here and scoring, I mean, it's, you know, you're, it's always in the back of your mind of, you know, making sure everything's above board and, you know, and it is a lot of, I mean, it's, it's on the, the person, you know, I don't have, you don't have a co-angler, you don't have a marshal that's out there with you. I mean, you know, you're taking a person at his word of, Hey, you know, I'm going to follow the rules and, and integrity. Do yeah. It's, it's all about personal integrity and, you know, and you hate to, you hate to see somebody, you hate to catch somebody cheating to think that, Especially for us. I mean, it's like, dude, you're going to cheat and win a couple hundred dollars. I mean, come on. I mean, in the state of Alabama, if you cheat, you know, in a fishing tournament, that's it's a, that's actually a felony. It's a low-level felony, but still, I mean. We've state had, side, state fail, felony. Yeah, we've had people here on Lake Gunnersville for bass tournaments get busted. And, I mean, you know, on, on the big boat side, and their name's getting drugged through the mud. And, you know, they get banned and everything, which, they, honestly, I think they should. I mean, you know, there should be rep- – it should be enough – the repercussions should be hard enough and that it would keep anybody from wanting to do it. So, so sorry, Rob, uh, to, to, what I'm going to try and do is get to Drew's question, but I think the way that I'm answering it is just what you're hearing here. They're going to be strung up, drawn and quartered by the community before the fishing tournament director ever gets the word out there. Now, does the director, owe the community anything oh I, I i believe so i mean because you know I, I think as a as a tournament director i i owe it to all the competitors in my events if something happens if something has even an air of you know that there might be cheating or, or somebody bending the rules it's up to it's incumbent to me to address it to everyone and i mean that just that's just you know let everybody see that, hey, I'm above board. I'm not going to try to hide anything. From transparency. People. Yeah, just complete transparency with not only the competitors, but everybody in our in our club this, in North Alabama Kayaking, which as a whole, I, you know, as a tournament director, I think, I think that's my responsibility. Now, how long, as a tournament director, uh, how long after the event do you think uh, warrants a response? Like, you giving it a week? Or are you giving it you know, a couple days. I mean, if, if, if someone has been disqualified from your tournament, mm-hmm. when, when do you feel comfortable making an announcement about it? Fortunately, I'll, 
I can't recall us ever having anybody disqualified. Now we've had some things come up and uh, for instance, we had somebody submitted the same fish twice and this was back before Tourney X. So, you know, we were looking at people's phones and everything and it got through and the guy called it and he actually said, Hey, you know, y'all can kick me out, you know, kick me out of the event or whatever. And so um, we got together as the board of directors and came up with a, a solution. And then we just like, probably three or four days later announced it to everyone said, Hey, this is what we're going to do. You know, he self-reported the incident. He wasn't trying to cheat. So, you know, we dropped him a couple of spots, you know, we docked him some length and dropped him and that probably cost him the angler of the year that of that year. But, um, you know, I think if you find it, I mean, even if it's months down the road, if it comes to light that somebody's cheating, I think you need, you need to address it. You know, so here's the deal. Not a statute of limitations on it. In my opinion. Here's the deal. So he said they haven't had an angler cheat yet or haven't been caught cheating yet. So if you're a regular tournament director and you've got tournaments going on year round and you've done such a good job that people are going to continue to fish your tournaments every single year, it's much like riding a motorcycle. There are those that have been down and those that haven't been down yet. Yeah, It's going to happen. You're going to have somebody that just, you know, is is off their uh, their game and they're going to fuck up. Oops, excuse me, live people. <laughs> they're going to they're going to mess up and uh, they're going to get caught cheating. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I completely agree. I, and my whole beef and, and why I'm a little worked up about this is it's it's awesome. It's great. Whoever, you know, the protest happened, you know, the the um, team was disqualified. But everything that we're hearing is hearsay right now. Because all we know is who protested and what they protested and that a team was disqualified. We don't know why they were disqualified. We don't know anything about, you know, there was supposedly a polygraph involved. Like, we don't know anything. And I don't think it's enough in a, it's an honor system with kayak tournaments. Complete honor system, like you were saying. There's no co-angler, there's no nothing. I don't think it's enough for hearsay from these tournaments. There has to be transparency and the people who were involved need to come out and say what was going on. Can you imagine having marshals out on kayak events? Oh God, <laughs> it would be it would be crazy. You'd be like, dude, get the hell out of my way, man! Exactly, you, you're spooking the fish. Like, yeah. how close can you can you keep people? I mean, and and that's one thing that's difficult about kayak fishing um it's very difficult to do shotgun starts for kayak fishing just because we can't cover the same water as boats and everything the on the freshwater side y'all usually have shotgun starts don't you or do y'all are y'all able to launch from anywhere on a lake you're able you're able to launch from anywhere on what on the lake on our regular trail series this year we've actually started a new trail series that we call the naka league fishing and it's based off the major league fishing format so we limited the field, and we only had 20 anglers that signed up. We were going to do 40, but we only had 20 that signed up. So, and the reason we did limited the field so we could do a shotgun, a common launch is what we call it. So, because um, we had feedback over the years in the beginning when we weren't a big group, we had 
feedback of, you know, hey, I missed the, you know, the camaraderie, basically the, the crap talking that happens prior to launch, you know, all that stuff. So um, we came up with the NACA League Fishing, and um, so we're doing the common launches for that. But all the other ones, our river stops, you know, you're out there on your own. I mean, so you can launch from wherever, but um, NACA League Fishing is a little bit different because the other tournament director and myself were out there on the water doing on-the-water interviews with the anglers throughout the day. Um, you know, we're going from boat to boat, just, you know, watching them talking. We do live Facebook posts, you know, about, hey, this is what they're doing and, you know, where they are in the standings, live leaderboard throughout the whole event. You know, most tournaments shut the leaderboard off, you know, like with three or four, two or three hours to go. But with NACA League Fishing, the live leaderboard stays on all the way up until it lines out. So um, it's, it's a little bit different. It's just a different look at so, it. With regards to, to cheating, has um, those live leaderboards and the Tourney X system put – has it changed in any way where – how am I trying to say this? Before that existed, there were still kayak tournaments, right? People were still, right. you know, fishing in their tournaments. And in some ways, I mean, it was ridiculous. Like you would have to take pictures of your catch and then you would have to bring your, your memory card. Your memory yeah. card. Yeah. And and you'd have to – somebody would sit there and download them and look at them and it would take forever and ever and ever. Um And with today's technology, I guess, yeah, because you have to have your GPS positioning turned on with Turn EX. Right. Because um, they, you have to be able to prove that you're in that body of water that yes. you're allowed to fish. Yeah. Um, and you have to have your EXIF um, data turned on, and you cannot have that data manipulated in any way. Um, so I would think that it's sort of helped – with the cheating aspect some um but then you still have the guys that like like to bend the board a little bit that's Um, why the catch board everybody's (laughs) going to the metal catch boards and stuff now catch board is the only board i think everybody has it i mean but we use the catch you can use the plastic or the metal catch board um but in regards to tourney x once the angler submits the picture of the fish Anybody can see the picture once it's, I think once it's scored. So it's just a lot more eyes on the picture. And sometimes, I mean, there's been tournaments where that's how the cheater has been caught. Exactly. Freshwater as, you know, I may not catch it as the judge because, I mean, you know, I'm judging sometimes hundreds of fish in a tournament. And, but, you know, Tourney X does have built-in features as far as it tells you that, hey, this fish is within a quarter of an inch of what somebody submitted or even the own, the angler that, you know, they have submitted a fish that's, that's a quarter of an inch or whatever. But, you know, people have noticed, especially in like these month-long tournaments, like these month-long big bass tournaments and stuff. I mean, you have people that have noticed, like, hey, that lad- that's the same fish. If you look at the lateral line, if you look at the the pattern on the gill rake and everything, and you know, that's how some people have been and have been caught is just through, you know, having that stuff out there in the in the public square to look at. I, I, and we're still string them and bring them on our end. I was gonna say I'm I'm not, I'm not a huge I'm not a huge fan of the online tournaments. There's I've said it for I've said it on this show I think before or maybe it was on a Dark Waters podcast. 
Like there, there's too much room for fuckery. Like with with the online tournaments. I mean, that's the only. That's a good description. I think there, there's there's margin for fuckery with those. Whenever you're bringing in, whenever you're bringing in fish to the scales, there's there's far less margin for you know doing something. Plus, crazy. it's just a damn good time, man. Yeah. When you well, bring I, fish into the scales. The thing I do like about the online tournaments, though, is the GPS tracking. Make sure people stay in bounds. You can see where they scored fish and stuff like that. Um, yeah, and we're as a as a judge on Tourney X, I can see when the picture was taken of the fish, when the picture was submitted of the fish, and a lot of times, if somebody submits a picture and I can't see the lip or whatever, I'll contact the angler or I'll. I know I can contact somebody that's out there fishing with them and say, "Hey, look, you know, hey, can you go tell Chris? Can he? Does he have another picture of this seventeen and a half inch fish he submitted? I, I can't really see it, or you know, I don't because I've never caught anything maybe over four or five inches in the freshwater world. <laughs> but you know, and I, you know, I try to, I try to err, not err for. I try to help the angler out. Like, hey, okay, if you submitted a fish, a picture, and it's not that great, you know." I give them a chance. I just don't disqualify the fish or penalize them. But then also, like, if it's something I can't tell, I mean, we usually have two or three other people that, you know, we can get eyes on. So I would like, hey, Drew, Chris, you know, look at the submission that Joe put in for this fish. You know, what do you – I don't tell you what I see. I just say, look at it and, and then tell me what you think, you know. And then so we go we go that way. It's a lot yeah. better to have more than one set of eyes on any on any time. Now, if you got the same guy – that you have to fool with every single tournament. I mean, does he get the benefit of the doubt, or are you like, man, you you keep trying yeah, to bend the come, rules and you keep enough, trying dude. to get get away with this stuff? Because I mean, usually, usually what I'll do if it's something that's if it's close on Tourney X, you can there's a notes block, so I'll write notes in there on a, on a fish like, hey, you know that the lip, you know lip is almost obstructed you know watch how you take your pictures make sure you're taking it from a 90 degree you know from a top angle so you know and we like i said we we penalize fish you know all the time but it's i think turning x turning x makes me think a lot more of as i'm scoring because you know like i said there's always other people that can see it not, not that i'm going to cheat for somebody but you know just knowing that hey somebody's gonna come behind me and then if I miss, make a mistake, then they're going to question my ability as a judge, you know, to score a tournament. So, you know, I kind of have that in the back of my mind. I well, mean, guys, guess what? Guess what? I got to stop you right there. <laughs> I got to stop you. Okay. We're 30 minutes in. We got to get onto the show. Let we me gotta... just say one more thing. One more okay, thing. Okay, Drew, you get one more thing. Okay. Anglers are human. Judges are human, but if the same human shows the same thing three, four, five, six, seven times, then they're a jackass. Go ahead. You're no longer a human. You're a jackass. Exactly. You're no longer a human. You're a jackass. Always calls me that. That's when it's ethics. More than once, I'll give you. I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. You do it one or two times. You do it more than two times. You're a jackass, and your ethics are crap. Once All or right, twice so, is a fluke, but three or more is a pattern. There you go. Here we go, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to start this episode with our rods. And right now, you might see if you're on Facebook, those of you listening on the podcast, right now I'm wearing 
my rod builder of choice. No, no heartache to towards you know Turner or or Osprey or anything like that. Just giving a shout out to my boy Hunter, who's always supported me over many many years. Um, my rod builder of choice, and of course, I'm really not into custom rods. I really just go with whatever is on the shelf. Okay. Um, so this is going to be a very interesting segment for us to talk about custom rods. And in fact, right now, what I'm going to do is put up this question to start things off. And I'm going to start with Rob because, um, we don't know much about the freshwater world, or at least I don't. And there are a lot of listeners out there, um, that are landlocked. I know this because Drew always tells me about all of our listeners in Kansas and <laughs> Chicago, and I know that those guys are landlocked. So tell these guys why someone would want to choose a custom rod over an ugly stick. Because I'm, I'm telling you what, ugly stick is telling everybody you can't beat their rods. Waterloo is telling everybody you can't beat their rods. Castaway is telling everybody you can't beat their rods. Is the custom stick better than commercial off the shelf? Um, you know, I think um, I think so. Just because you know, I think my my said I'm like like all those guys. I think my rods are, are really good are really good rods. But a lot of the a lot of it when it comes to custom, especially from the guys that that I deal with, it's they're real particular. It's like you know. They have a, a seven six rod that they use for frog fishing, but you know they wanted a little bit shorter rod or you know something just they want something specific just for drop shotting or, or whatever. So um, the the custom rod you just you you get to input into you know what you want. But then and then on the flip side of that you have the people's like I just want a University of Alabama rod or I just want an Auburn rod. You know they just want the color. I there's a, tur- a tournament angler here that I build rods for he just wanted to match his ranger he wanted this, the same color scheme as his boat so I mean I built no that truck oh you're talking about the boat yeah so you know I built you know specific I'd be technique specific rods for him but they're all the same color pattern and everything so um, so that's all whenever I first started hearing about custom rods um, you know that that was a thing that's what I always thought it was just color and you know, um, branding and, you know, putting someone's name on it. That's what I thought a custom rod was. And I kept looking at these rods saying, damn, looks like somebody threw up a pack of chiclets on that damn rod. <laughs> you know, it, it just doesn't look to me. It doesn't look appealing. But then again, I like everything murdered out all black for me. Yeah. Now, Drew, why, why do, would you say buy a custom rod versus commercial off the shelf? <sighs> You ever you, you know the guys that drive a nineteen eighty Ford F one fifty? They've had that truck for freaking thirty years. They're like, I don't need a truck with a Bluetooth and heated seats and this and that. This one gets me to work. This one gets me where I need to go. This one gets the job done. You know, you you have those guys out there. Those guys have no idea how nice it is to have your butt warmed in the middle when it's 
freaking 30 degrees outside, to have the Bluetooth hooked up, to have a suspension that's not creaking and going all crazy. Not rattling your feelings loose. Exactly. <laughs> and, and I think that's kind of the same, same way with these custom rods and some of your higher-end rods. Some people do not understand because they don't know what they're missing until they fished all day with a nice custom rod. Till they fished all day with some grips that were shaped for their hands. They fished all day with a, you know, a real seat that's 11 inches from the butt instead of 13 or 14. You know, they, 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 they don't know what they're missing because all they've used their whole life is the factory rods, which there's nothing wrong with that. Like I'm saying, there's nothing wrong with the guy that loves his 1980, you know, F-150. It gets him to, to, you know, it gets him to the coast. It gets him to fishing. It gets him where he wants to go. That's perfectly fine. But if you do enjoy some of the nicer creature comforts that can, you know, help your experience while you're fishing, or like like Rob was saying, maybe they just want something to match the colors. Like, if that makes you feel good, we talked about it in our last episode, you know, one of the biggest things that Clint talked about when catching trout is you got to have confidence whenever you're out there fishing. The, the fish know whenever you're confident, and the fish know whenever you're not confident. So if a Alabama do they, rod... Do or, they? They know, dude. It's the universe. The universe <laughs> knows, man. But the It's uh, like them cows laying down. Them fish are like, hey, I know the cows are laying down today. Exactly. I'm not, so, I don't have to eat. Exactly. But... You know, if 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 you feel good about it, you're going to use that rod more. You're going to cast more. And are there... When you get into the higher-end factory rods, there's not a whole, whole lot of difference between a higher-end factory rod and a custom rod other than there might be a little more, you know, quality control with the custom guy. Um, so... A I lot of the components and blanks are going to be the same, but you're not going to get it tailored exactly like you want it. But there's a big difference between a $79 All-Star and even, yes, a, even a less expensive custom rod. Say a $150, $200 custom rod that a guy's doing basic stuff for you. There's a big difference between that like those two. Now, your $450 Waterloo compared to a higher-end rod that I'm going to build you, there's not going to be a whole lot of difference in the components of it because they're using higher-end components, and there's not that many components out there. But the attention to detail that somebody like me or Rob can give you and the specialized decals, you know, the the thread colors just right, you know, your, your favorite saying from your grandma – on there the sentimental value of it that is something that the factories blood. just yeah they can't offer you're just gonna you're just gonna pour some blood into it and... shoot i can put some blood in some epoxy man <laughs> and we can make you hey, a blood rod there's so a, i i did have to have there's actually i've seen where people have had ashes from loved ones put in the epoxy on a custom fishing rod yep that's crazy I, dad I dad's always going to be fishing with you from now on yeah, I've no, never done it, but I've, I've seen posts on Facebook on custom rod builders groups where they've done like a little cross inlay, and it was ashes of a loved one. So I did have to have a custom rod built once, and that was because my favorite rod broke. 
And I took that rod to a rod builder, which just so happened to be fish sticks, Hunter Welch. And I said, build this, rebuild this rod for me. And he did in this freaking perfect. Now, check this out, guys. I'm going to pop this question up here, but I don't want you to answer it because we got another listener who answered the question with a question. Check this out. What made you decide to become a rod builder? Okay, that's from Brandon. Brendan, I always say his name, Brandon. All right, that's from Brendan Keeter. And this guy actually answered his question before he even asked that question. This is Mark Usick. And Mark Usick asks, why do some guys have to build their own hot rod while others think their factory Mustang Cobra did they, that they bought did not, you know, it's, it's just great that they bought from the showroom floor? That answers the dude's question, but Brendan's question with Mark's question. Because that dude that built his hot rod himself with his own two hands got to completely customize the spec on every single component within that engine. When he built that hot rod, the clearances were perfect, just the way he wanted it on every single mechanical component. When he built that hot rod, he put a little bit of love, a little bit of joy, a little bit of sweat, a little bit of tears into building that hot rod. He wasn't just the dude that went off and and went down to the showroom floor and picked out, you know, his, his favorite looking Cobra off the showroom floor. There's a little bit of pride. And that's probably what made you guys decide to become a rod builder because you were able to put the specs into the rod the way that you wanted it. Um, and not only that, but also a little bit of pride in being able to fish with something that you built. Now, I'm going to tell a story, and it, it's probably been told here before, but I took this guy fishing one time, <laughs> and we fished all damn day long, man. And when he um, says and- all day, we were on like hour 13, Probably it was hour twelve so, or thirteen. So you guys know who it was you, all day. Listeners, you know who this guy is, right? <laughs> and he, I'm, I'm burning up. I'm dying. I'm like, I'm like, man. I think, I think death is knocking on my door. Um, we might need to get off the water. And he's like, look, Chris, I came out here with one specific thing in mind, and that's to catch a fish on the rod that I built with the lure that I built. I was like, son of a, we could have done that from. <laughs> Hour one. We had already you caught what, about until... 15 redfish at that point. You waited until the 12th hour to tell me that you wanted to do this. Yes, so there's some pride um, in in being able to build your own rod. Yeah, now, that's, that's, I mean, that's kind of how I started. With, when I started fly fishing, um, I got into fly tying. And so I was like, oh, it, how cool it would be to catch a fish on something that I tied. And so I called a fish on it, and then it was like, how cool it would be to catch something on a fly that I tied on a rod that I built. So, And I'm a tinker by nature, so, I mean, it just kind of fit in. I've seen some of his fly rods, man, and they are pretty friggin' sweet. I appreciate it. Now, so, my deal, I got to get into these questions, man. Oh, go ahead, go ahead, go hey, ahead. Hey, man. I got to get into these questions. You got some good ones else, popping what? up in the comments, too. So. I do, I do, I know. I, we've got to pay attention to those guys. Now, don't go anywhere, okay? We're going to get to some of these questions. But what I've got is a, I've got a pr- prescribed list 
of questions that I've got to ask here. And and we're going to start it off. Once again, I'm going to go back to Rob because, Drew, you get plenty of love on this show, man. Uh, it's and, our show. It's our show. Of course our, I do. <laughs> so I already know what Drew's going to tell me, okay? I already know what he's going to tell me. But um, Pin Clash. <laughs> yeah, it's sitting down on the bottom of freaking Cold Pass. Oh, so, one of them are. Is, God dang it. There's a, so, way to, there's a way to fix that. Uh-oh, Savior. You start, uh-huh. gotta start building them into your rods, man. Um, you know what's crazy is like five months before that product came out, I'm trying – I'm talking to my father-in-law who runs the machine shop at NASA, and I'm like, dude, you got to help me come up with some way to like – man, so that if we drop a rod down, you know, we have like a GPS tracker or something that floats it back up, and he's like, yeah, Chris, I don't think that will ever be, you know – Oh, you'll never profit off of that. You probably won't ever be able to put it in production to, you know, make some money off of it. You might just be spinning your wheels. I don't think it'll ever catch on, you know, that sort of thing. Guess what happened? Five months later, we start seeing Savior popping up, and I'm like, son of a... Actually, Corey drove over from Austin, Texas last night. He's here in town for a big bow fishing tournament tomorrow night. So I had dinner with him last night. So you build them into your rods now. I know I've seen that... um, you posted something just the other day about it, but let's get into this question. Okay, so ladies and gentlemen, Rob builds mainly um, freshwater rods. Of course, he's got some of his saltwater stuff out there as well, but mainly freshwater rods. So putting together all the custom rods that you've built, which rod would you say is is built the most? What type of rod and what it's used for? It's a spinning rod that got nicknamed in the very beginning as Lucy. It's a six foot ten medium extra fast action uh spinning rod and um it's great for skipping like uh weightless flukes up underneath bushes so if you're doing like a river float or whatever you can skip a weightless jerk shad or whatever underneath bushes um it handles any kind of finesse like wacky rig or uh, ned rig really well and with that fast tip on it i mean it got a really good return so if you're working a a donkey rig or anything like that, that fast tip is really helping you with the action of, of working so, that fluke. Here, here are the, some, some key points that you just, you, you know, key words that you put out there. Um, you said finesse and you said weightless. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we're talking something that you're obviously going to have to be able to feel all the way back. Um, right. And you're going to have to know what's going on on the other end of that rod. So with this type of rod, Okay, let's just call Lucy the finesse rod. Okay, um, what power and action are you? I know you already said fast tip, but um, point. Talk about that a little bit more. The power and the action, the best, the recommended um, components to do that. Okay. <laughs> to uh, to I mean, build to make Lucy. Yeah, to make Lucy. Uh, the backbone, like you said, the backbone is the, the um, blank itself. So I use a, a company called Rod Geeks. It's basically owned by St. Croix. Mm-hmm. So um, they have uh, two different, they have a carbon two and a carbon four, which is just the modulus of the blank. So I go with a carbon four just because it's a little bit lighter. Um, and so when I get when I get a Lucy built, it weighs in normally, I think around like 3.8 ounces. So, um, and then I go with the Fuji K frame guide train. So it's not the traditional Kona flight guide frame that a lot of a lot of the older 
casting rods or spinning rods you'd see. You know, you'd have just the guys would progressively get smaller all the way to the end. Uh, with a K frame, it you choke the the flight of the, the cone of flight of the line down within the first three guides, and then it's just regular running guides all the way out. So it gives you a little bit better casting. It kind of does the same thing. People are familiar with the microwave guides. It's kind of the same concept. Um, so that way you have a lot lighter. You have a lighter rod. It's a lot more responsive because it's that extra fast it's medium. Um, so you have lifting power for you know for bass whatever, and just with the that K frame guide train to me, you just get a lot better casting. You don't get a lot. You don't really have to deal with wind knots. Um, I recommend using a ten pound uh, ten pound braid and then run your you know, whatever kind of leader you want to use on it. Just because with that 10 pound braid, you're going to get a lot better casting distance anyway. And about a 200, 2000 size uh, cast, or spinning reel on it. Um, so what, it, what, power, what power and action does this rod have? It's a medium power, extra fast action. So all your bend is like the first maybe 10 or 15% uh -huh. at, at the very tip of the rod. So as, they, as you talk, yeah. So as you talk about the, the speed of the rod, it's where the bend is. So as you extra fast, all the bend is at the very front of it. And as you start coming back all the way to a moderate, a moderate for all you science nerds out there, a moderate has a parabolic bend. So if you take a big, uh, like a swim bait rod, a fiberglass swim bait rod, it's a, a parabolic bend. It basically just makes a half circle. Whereas an extra fast, you're getting all your bend right there at the very end of it. It's, it's a, like the last 10 inches, maybe eight yeah. inches. And it recovers really fast. So if you're working that, if you're working that uh, weighted, that weightless flute, when you just pop it, it goes right back really fast. So you can just really sit there and just work that weightless um, flute. And mainly, we, we're doing it a lot for like smallmouth on rivers and stuff. So you're, you're, you know, you're flowing, you're hitting eddies, you, you know, you're just really working it, casting, you know, just kind of shoot and scoot kind of deal. Now, Drew. I know exactly what you're going to want to talk about because um, there has been a lot of buzz lately in the, the Drew Turner and the Turner Rodco world in regards to the jalapeno popper. The jalapeno popper will be here very, very soon. I, I'm, I've been waiting on some components to come in. Now I've been told they won't be here till November. So I'm going to go ahead and switch up from uh, EVA to cork um, on the jalapeno popper. That way I can get that out because I've already got some sold. I know um, everybody's struggling to get components. It's just the yeah. way of the world right now. And I'm just waiting to get that out. I mean, the, the jalapeno popper is there. There hasn't been a purpose built. There hasn't been very many purpose built popping cork rods um, out there. There's, you know, there's pop per rods but there's i mean this is built for popping corks i mean for most the, people whenever from they the want tips to the hand rod they go out there and they just buy a, a medium rod with you know maybe moderate you know action or something like that you know or a broomstick they just buy a broomstick or they find their heaviest rod that they already own and then they say that's yeah. their popping cork rod yep yeah um, that's exactly what i did but this this is a seven foot three medium heavy with a fast tip, um, it's going to have the recoil tip on it, which you know is the wire tip on it. Because we all know, whenever you're reeling in a popping cork, um, it's usually either got 
you know, titanium wire or something right there at the very top that is going to knock out the inserts of your ceramic tip top. Um, so instead of using stainless, which stainless would be a little bit cheaper, I decided to go with the with the ti uh, the recoil titanium top um, on it. It will also have a palm swell um, reel seat. And I know one of your questions there is about I was fatigue. Actually gonna, yeah, I was actually going to yeah. get to that, and I was going to ask you because uh, where are you going, Rob? He's going to get down. his. Oh, he's yeah. going to get his real seat. Yeah, if you're going to throw your uh, Turner popping court rod, you got to have an Osprey Rods clacker. Oh, there, uh -oh. You go. Uh -oh. there you go. Uh -oh. I feel a collabo coming on. I feel <laughs> a collabo coming on. So let me tell you the reason why I did not like popping corks to begin with. Whenever I first started, somebody said you need to try using popping corks, and I bought some, and it was a pain in the ass, and I didn't like it. And I stopped like almost immediately. You want to know why? Because the rod sucked, and because I didn't, ha I had a freaking four thousand series reel. That's a big reel. You know that I was using this popping cork on, and with within you know an hour, I'm like, actually not even an hour, probably like 10, 15 minutes. I'm like, forget this, and I put the rod away. Right. So, yes, with regards to the question of fatigue. What is it that you can do to your rods and specifically the rods that you, in this case, the popping cork rod, to reduce fatigue? A lot of the reason that guys are getting fatigue is when you are holding a spinning rod. All right, here's a spinning uh, reel seat right here. This is Thank 20 you, millimeters. Um, for all the podcast listeners out there. I, I, I'm talking, just hold on, hold on. So I have a spinning reel seat right here. A spinning reel seat is going to be, you know, for a size 16, which is what a lot of people use for the, the inshore builds and stuff. It's about 20 millimeters. It's, it's, it's small in your hand. Like it doesn't feel very substantial. Now, when you're reeling in a, spinning reel you know you're usually just holding the reel seat whenever you're reeling it in you're not holding down here on the bottom on the grip you're actually holding around the reel seat around the rod you have um you know you have your thumb here where you can grab it now this is small this is something small in your hand and i don't have huge hands but this is small in my hand now if i'm going to be popping a cork or something all day I want something a little more substantial in my hand so I'm not gripping so tight on that rod to pop it. So what I decided to do was I decided to go with the Comfort uh, comfort Swell from American Tackle. And you can see it has a bump on the back side. And the largest portion of this is 32 millimeters. So it's 12 millimeters bigger and it really it, it fits into your hand better. So whenever you're popping, you're not like it's more holding like a control on. thing. Yes, and it's it's a lot small. I mean, it's bigger in your hand, but it's not the weight isn't that much more than using a standard size reel seat. Now you said you said you're not going to hold the the rod all the way at the butt, um, but you do if your name is Luke Combs. Oh God, that was horrible. That was somebody needed to like, and they were out. You know what was worse than Luke Combs though? 
is when Ted Cruz was out there. Oh. Golly, I don't know what he was doing. Like if somebody you're gonna go out and you're going to do a PR. You're going to do PR. Okay, first off, you're going to do PR. You've got a captain. You're on a boat. You've got a captain. The captain should be able to direct the person what to do so he doesn't look like a total ass. Absolutely. <laughs> Somebody on that boat should have told him, like, what are you doing, bro? Because that is horrible. Right. I digress. I digress. All right, Rob, what do you do to help prevent fatigue? Um, I use a ergonomic um, a real seat as well. I use the, for the casting, I use the Fuji TBS. Um, it's like a almost like a skeleton style, but it has a, a carbon fiber insert in it. And so... Um, what I, for me, what I, what I started doing and the other guys seemed to like is I actually went up to a, a size 17 real seat. So I bumped up the size of the real seat and, um, uh, yeah, that's, and you can like, you know, um, for my popping cork, my inshore rods that I built, I made the butt just a little bit smaller. So if I'm, when I'm popping it, I don't have to make like really big exaggerated movements. It's, it's more, it's just right in my wrist. So I shortened up the fighting butt on it a little bit and um, I went over now I, for me personally, I use all carbon fiber grips um, just because I can save a little bit of weight on them. But like Drew was saying, after watching people fish and doing it myself, hardly anybody holds on to the actual handle itself. So really all the comfort is right there. And even with like a, um, a casting rod, you're palming, you know, you're palming the reel, those low profile reels, you're palming the reel, so all the comfort is right there in the reel, and then in the bottom of that reel seat. So yeah, that's yeah. You're you're gonna be palming that. And did like, you I, just hit the fan with your rod? Barely. barely. I know a guy that can fix it, but I can fix it. it. But hey, it, it's not gonna it's not gonna break because it's got the recoil tip on it. So but yeah, yeah. The, the the reel seat makes all the difference when it comes, you know, for the ergonomics and and uh, using the rod all day. And like I said, and just not having a lot of stuff in the way as far as, you know, having to really exaggerate your movements. What these guys don't know, listeners and the people that are that are end users, okay, um, and they may know. I, I, I hate to say that they all don't know, but um, end users most of the time don't think of what's actually beyond the surface of what they're holding. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they may be like, oh, this is a slick looking, you know, uh, real seat man oh yeah it's, it's looks good feels good in my hand but you put you put a word out there that that uh stuck a light bulb man it went off skeleton okay so that obviously is some sort of rigid profile on the inside of that component well yeah give me a second i can actually grab one off my shelf and show you show show these guys okay we we're going to have to describe it to the listeners. Yeah, so the skeleton reel seat that he's going to get, there's nothing in the middle. Uh, you know, the traditional reel seat, you see a piece of graphite. It's about four or five inches long, and it's a solid piece of graphite. These skeletons are, you have the bottom where it's holding in your reel, and you have the top where it's holding in your reel, and in the middle is the actual rod blank, and that's what he's going to grab right now. So that's... Okay. Yep. And so for this is the food TVS. And so for in order to put it together, then you basically have a carbon fiber insert that goes into it. So 
that makes a complete real sheet. And, you know, it's, you can tell it's our, how it's shaped at the top. So that's not just built to look sexy. That's actually built to form a function. Well, it's say, yeah, it's ergonomic, What's but also function? just by, you know, by taking out the area here, you know, you're saving weight because it's less material. And instead of using the graphite, I have a carbon fiber insert and, you know, there's different inserts. So if you want one that's blue or gold or whatever, you know, I can modify the insert to, to match the, the theme of the rod or, or whatever. And then they also, I mean, they have ones that are, you just have basically, it's just the front piece and then the back piece and there's nothing in the center. And then the rod builder just, you know, uh, positions it on the blank. And that's on those, you're actually touching the blank itself. I mean, yeah. that, that's like a really ultra, ultra light. I built, I use that when I build a, a I've actually built a rooster tail rod. It's for throwing quarter ounce and smaller rooster tails. Those real tiny rooster tails. Yeah. Yeah. For catching trout. It's a, it's a seven foot light bass. And that's what I use because I don't want it to weigh anything because you're waiting and you're trying to catch trout and stuff. So it's almost like fly fishing, but cheating a little bit. (laughs) And, and to me, it's those skeletons that are just the top and the bottom. Those just aren't very comfortable to me. Um, I, I, I like the cutout ones. Like you can see this one has the cutout right there in the back and that's actually to the rod blank. So Mm -hmm. that's, that's no insert anything. So this is actually my flounder rod. So I want to feel just the slightest little thump. So my finger is actually touching the blank right there. Uh, whenever I have it palmed and it, it really, Chris, you, you said something just now. Guys will grab one, they'll look at it for a second, they'll look at the colors, then they'll look at the price tag and, and they'll wiggle like, it around. Yeah, they'll blah, shake blah, 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 it, blah, blah, blah. they'll shake it up and down. What that does, I have no idea, but I used to do it too. Yep. Uh, but they'll wiggle it around and they're like, All right, I want it. They didn't put a reel on it. They haven't really sat there and held it in their hand. Like the real seat that he that he just showed, the skeleton real seat, the real seat that I just showed, hell, this American Tackle real seat is a little bit different and it has the insert in it and stuff. One of the one thing about buying a custom rod is if you have a builder that's worth his salt and stuff, he is going to ask you, how do you what about hold she? your how do, or she, he or she, it doesn't matter. How do you hold your reel? Like, how are you holding it? Because most people, they won't say, I I won't say most, 75% of people when they're buying a custom rod, they have no clue what reel seat they want on there. But if you ask them, how do you hold your reel? You're like, well, the way you're holding it, like, you don't need a skeleton. You need just one with the with the insert, you know. Or you don't need you, you look like you would benefit from just a full a full grip on there. Or you, you like to right there and fill the blank, you need one with a cutout. So buying one from a custom builder, they'll ask you questions that you didn't even think mattered until you start fishing with that rod and you're like, "Man, this feels so much better than those other rods" because they're asking you they're asking you things that matter. So there was a time um back probably around hmm, I want to say 2015 <clears throat> when I started working with some some line 
manufacturers out there and started learning more about fishing line because it used to be um, it was all trial and error. When when I went and bought line, first off, I used trialing big game probably like 75 to 80% of my fishing career I've used trialing big game. And then once once I started to talk to these folks about line and learning all the different specifications of lines and how this line is used for this and this line's used for that, and then they started talking about matching your line to your rod and matching your line to your reel and matching your line to your lure. All of these pieces, as they start to stack up, complete your entire profile of what you're doing out there on the water. It's the combination of the rod, the reel, the line, and what's tied on the end. Now, what do you guys do in completing your product out there to consider those things? The rod, the reel, the line, and what's being tied on the end. Rob, I'll let you go first because I know the bass world is like full of like, 70,000 different combinations of, and that's why you've got to bring 50 rods on a kayak. Yeah. Well, the good thing now, um, most all your rod blank manufacturers, especially for freshwater, have technique specific blanks. You know, they're built with certain tapers and speeds and powers. So, for example, for like a big crankbait, most people are going to be throwing a big crankbait or a big swim bait on monofilament line because that line stretches. So it's harder for the fish to, you know, with the big treble hooks to, to throw the hooks with the stretch. So you want a rod that's going to give more. So you're going to use more of a, a slower action on that type build. Whereas like a frog rod, a frog rod, I'm throwing 65 pound braids tied straight to the frog. And I don't want, you know, when I set the hook, I'm winching, you know, five pound fish and five pounds of hydrilla, you know, out of something. So, you know, a, a frog rod or a, a flipping stick, you know, they're just a lot heavier. Uh, they have more lifting action and they're usually generally a faster rod um, to get that speed at the tip. So um, that's the, that's the big thing is just talk to the angler and it's like, okay, um, so I just built a rod for a guy. He wanted a top water rod. So we sat down, we talked, you know, what kind of reel are you going to put on it? You know, how do you normally fish? You know, he complained that he had a rod that he liked, but the butt kind of would hit his PFD. So, you know, we talked about, you know, you made the little bit shorter, uh, handle and everything. So for me, really, it just starts out with the technique and then just kind of go, cause usually on freshwater, you know, if somebody's fishing, you know, most everybody, most everybody now is running braid with some sort of leader, be it fluorocarbon or, or monofilament. So, um, not a lot of people seem to have you know rods that are just all fluoro, all mono, or all braid. So that kind of takes a little bit out of it. All braid here. <laughs> yeah, he's raising his hand for the all. Braid. That's that's because that's because we fish in absolute mud. Yeah, yeah, and, you know, if you're fishing a moving bait, I mean, the fish generally on a moving bait, you're going to get a reaction strike anyway. So the fish doesn't have time to sit there and analyze. I mean, it's passing through, and it's a split-second decision. Whereas, like I said, you're fishing finesse, that Ned rig, it's sitting there, and that fish, you know, has a chance to look at it and, and 
all that. So, so yeah. what? Whenever this guy contacted you about building him a, a topwater um, rod, mm-hmm. you know, how did you select the rod blank based off of that? That alone. I just looked at, went in and looked at the the technique specific blanks that uh, rod geeks have, and. You know, he told me he wanted a certain length and everything, and I found the blank, and I, I think I had to trim just like an inch off to get it to the length that he wants. And see, that's the good thing with a custom rod builder is, man, I built a seven-foot, one-inch rod one time for somebody, and that's just like a totally, completely off the wall. They don't sell seven-foot, one-inch blanks either. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's like... I got some six-foot, one-inch rods, but they didn't start out that way. They started out at six six. Yeah, so, I mean, that's, the, you know, the good thing... Like you can cut it your you know the custom length or and then like uh, like Drew was saying you know somebody maybe they've gone to Bass Pro Shop and they're like you know I really like the action of this blank I really like the real seat on this rod and and Drew probably knows once you start building a rod when you walk through Bass Pro Shop you're just looking at you're looking at the rods you're like okay I know what he's I know what they're using I know what they're using and um, another one of the ways that you know I kind of learned is I have a friend that's pro staff for big name rod company and I repair his rods for him. So whenever I would get a $600 custom built tournament fishing rod, dude, I would measure it, get the specs. I mean, I would look at it, break it down and, you know, I'd order the parts. Infiltrating the, uh, (laughs) yeah. So, and I can tell you, you know what, I can build you that rod or I can build you a cheaper version because they're using titanium guides and the first guide on it costs $32. Yeah, uh, I can build you whatever you want. The only limitation is your wallet. I mean, really, exactly. that's what it down to. I love titanium guides, man. But that's you know that's usually around. I don't know what they are these days. But whenever I was having, uh, whenever I had titanium guides added to my rods, it was usually around an extra hundred bucks. Oh yeah, easily. Yeah, easily. they're just to me. They're just loud with braid. I don't. They are I don't, loud with braid, especially that la- that last one. Yep, it's that a little last loud with guy. braid. That's it. And, and what about? And generally, with your bass guys, the biggest damage you see is they just step on them. Being on the, you know, because they have fifty rods on the deck, and they, and they land a fit or they do a, a hook set, they just step on their rods. And That's going to come up here in a yeah. second. I got that question All right. in my in my in my box. I digress. Um, Drew, so let's say I'm coming to you, man, and I'm like, hey, dude, you know what I want to throw? I want to throw bugs lures all day, and bugs, you know, are usually around eighth to sixteenth ounce, you know. What kind of rod are you going to grab for me, man? What kind of rod are you going to build for me? And I'm, I'm a sight casting fisherman. I'm going to build you a medium light um, just because we're not pulling through heavy color uh, cover. Probably a medium light, but – and I'll also ask you to do you do you – how many rods have you broke? Do you like to high stick? Like <laughs> You already, know the, you already are, know the answers. Are you that. trying to boat flip? <laughs> Because oh. if you if you're one that likes to boat flip reds or try to boat flip big trout or something like that, I'm not gonna build you a fast or or an extra fast because you're gonna be calling me going, man, that damn rod snapped on me the other day. Well, yeah, it snapped because you were boat flipping a seven pound redfish with a medium light fast rod. So I may I may build you a mod fast, but I, I, for for you, I'd probably build you. I would build you a medium light mod fast with that lighter bugs lure. It's going to give you a little bit more whip to get that eighth ounce jig out there. 
whenever you, you're sight casting for redfish, you really it doesn't have to be super sensitive where you can feel the bite because you're looking no, it does at not. you're You'll looking at you're looking at the fish. I mean, you you really don't need an extra fast. Um, but I, I would throw a, a medium light mod fast depending on what type of line that you usually like to use will really depend on the guides how rough you are if a guy tells me he's pretty rough on his stuff i'm just gonna put stainless steel double swags there's no ceramic insert in there um if i look at some of his old rods or he brings me some to uh to fix and the first guide the stripper guide the one coming from the reel on all of his rods, if that's where the ceramic guide is coming off, I know he doesn't use the hook keeper, and he uses that guide all the time. So I'm not putting ceramic guides on there. I'm putting stainless steel double swagged on there every single time. So it it really and truly is, if you're buying a custom rod from me, it is custom from the butt to the tip. I'm not... Now, if you say, I don't know what I want, like... Rob said, I'm going to ask you, what are you going to use this rod for the most? What type of reel are you going to use? And what type of line do you use? And then that'll kind of steer me towards which components I'm going to put on that rod. I mean, as well as the price, too. Because if you, know, you want to throw recoils on there and you, know, you want a super sensitive, super lightweight, you want it to be a 3-ounce, 2-ounce, 2.5-ounce rod... Like that's going to, that's going to cost some money because those blanks are expensive and we haven't touched on this, but the reason that he was talking about the different moduluses, the reason those lightweight blanks are more expensive is because moduluses or moduli. I, I'm going to say moduluses. Well, you can say moduli, um, is there is more resin, the lower the modulus. So the higher the modulus, the more pure graphite, the less resin there is. But that also, with that sensitivity and lightweight, if you get a little nick from the back of the truck on one of those or something, it's Kiss more likely goodbye. to snap. Yeah. yeah, that's why some of these guys are talking about their, you know, their rods, $79, $69, $59 have lasted forever. I saw one that you could slam and shut in a tailgate and everything the other day. And those are awesome. But they're heavy what, and they're not as you sensitive. Just, you just said that, and I need to go ahead and give a shout-out to my boy Nate Norton. Nathan, look, man, I'm real sorry. If you get out there and you uh, start fishing with your brand-new Sage and it breaks on you, I really I apologize for what I did to your rod. Yeah, that's the that's the trade off. The trade off with the higher modulus is just that the rods are brittle. It's, it's the, the graphite is just more brittle. Yeah, there's not as much epoxy. And I, Chris, I think that kind of leads into um, a question that you were going to ask about the treatment of your rods. How you know, how, you know, how was that worded? Well, you know, I had another question on here, but I, I'm going to go ahead and answer it myself. I'm going to ask the question, and I'm going to answer it myself. Um, are the line weight specs on the rod accurate, and what do they really mean? Um, the line weight specs on a rod are bullshit, and they really don't mean a damn thing because you're going to end up tying whatever the hell you want on the end of that rod anyway. But what they are there for is what 
I would consider the mean. That's that's the recommended for the best performance. Yeah, the for that rod blank. The only the only rod blanks that you can count on the line rating are fly rods because they're standardized across the industry. Other than that, it's it's one company's medium fast is probably could be another company's medium extra fast. I mean, it's Uh that it's you know kind of a free for all. All right, so. Last question, then we're going to pull some of these uh, listeners' questions. Protecting your rods, okay? What do you guys recommend for protecting your rods? Now, we're kayak fishermen. We've got a couple different elements that we need to address. To and from the launch, okay, getting them in and out of our vehicles. Um, How do we protect them the best while we're out on the water? And uh, storage, you know, whenever we have them in our our homes, in our garage, wherever so what do you guys recommend for protection of these custom built very expensive very beautiful looking rods um i use rod gloves uh all my rods come with rod gloves so you know wrap that rascal yeah wrap it when it's not in the water you know not in the water you know keep it wrapped so that way it keeps it from getting hit and smashed against tailgates and stuff. If you're throwing it in the back of your truck, if that, you know, think about it, if you're riding to, to go fishing and that rod's out there and it's just constantly tapping ding, on, ding, 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 picking ding. on something, I mean, that's just, that's going to damage the blank over time. You may not see it on the outside, but eventually that blank will fail. Same thing with like, if you have like a heavy lure, uh, like Drew was saying, you know, if you, some people hook it, not necessarily on the, the, the hook keeper, but they hook it higher up. And so that, um, lure, heavy lure is just sitting there banging on that blank. Eventually, it'll damage the blank. Um, on the water, a lot of times, especially if you have like a Hobie or any boat that has the internal rod storage, be be mindful when you insert the rod in to push it down so you're not catching the guides as they go into that because you'll those guides are angled, especially the Fuji K frames, are angled for a reason, and that's to keep the line mm-hmm. When it if it comes over with like a wind knot, it'll it'll just shear off and keep going. But when you push them in, what happens is that you'll just take and push that guide up, and then it weakens it there at the at the end of it, and eventually that guide will snap huh, off. Those are supposed to be bent like that, huh? Yeah, it's it's to help with like you know wind knots. I've seen I've seen people, damn all mine are worthless now. I went and straightened them all out. <laughs> yeah, go back and push them down, and then when they break, Drew can fix them. Yeah, push them down just a little bit. What one of my biggest pet peeves is you're talking about, and I've already talked about it a little bit. Guys, quit reeling your lure and jig head all the way up to the very tip top of your rods. I'll throw do it, it if in, I want to. Throw it in in the back, like, and it's there's there'll be four rods, and every one of them will have a dang lure just sticking up sideways out of it. I my, mean, it, my, top the, waters, you guys are tearing yeah, up exactly. the tips of your rods. Look, look, man, the the. Next best thing is go ahead and bring it down to the bottom where it's going to stick in my back. Put it in the hook keeper. There are hook keepers on the rods. Put it on the hook They're keeper. Not there for decoration. My lure, my lure has six hooks on it. Put it behind you first. Are you scratching your back with the damn top water? <laughs> are you like, there's a she dog. Let me scratch my back with it. I mean, put it on the hook keeper. Get it out of the way. That will really protect it. 
Um, like, like we said, do not hook it onto a ceramic eye. Don't do that. Don't hook it onto the hook keeper and then reel it so tight that your rod is bent at, at the top and then you store it like that. That's just continuous oh, you, stress on that graphite you know, all the time. You know we all, 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 everybody that's listening to this podcast hooks it to the eyes, to the guides. Don't do it. Yeah. Don't do it. In a hurry, in a hurry, we're always like. Like yep, B-15 just put it right there. Said, you can think about it. But don't do it. Exactly. <laughs> Chris is just going to get a, a seven foot medium heavy with stainless steel double swag dies if I build He's you a rock. Gonna be like, yep. Like Chris, mod, you're never going to be able to break fast. this shit. You won't, also, bre- you won't break it. Also, Kevin, see, uh, Kevin Wills knows what's up, man. He, he, hey, you know what? Kevin, I'm, he's talking to me too. Because I'm talking to 90% thing. of you guys out there. 90%. Also, when Drew mentioned it before, high sticking. High sticking does nothing for that rod that's good. That rod has the most power when it is sitting straight. Once you start getting up past 45 degrees, you're basically, the rod is losing power and you stand, you know, you run the possibility of snapping the rod. And you're I know losing your leverage. You're losing yeah. your leverage. And I've seen, you know, there's rods out there where they show where they bend it all the way over and, you know, make, but yeah, don't, don't high stick them. When you get so, home, don't sit there and try to pull your kayak over to the, Whatever you're hung on, you're, you don't do that. Come on, man. I mean, you can't. I, you don't, I mean, you I have if probably every rod that I've ever broken has been broken by high sticking. <laughs> and in one season, I think in uh, 2019, I think I broke three. Yeah. Oh, uh, well, you know, it happens. But and then when well, you were talking about, uh, Drew was talking about when you reel it down and store it. Um, I store all mine. Uh, I take the lures off. I cut, you know, just cut the lure off. They're sitting, and then I back off all the brakes on my reels. So you know, I store them vertical with under no tension. So. I back the brakes off, but I mean, as as you can see, let me see if I can not hit anything. Um, I I don't always take the lures off. That's that's an old crumpled up uh, curly tail gulp yeah. right there. That was actually from a trip with Kevin the other day. So yeah, that's yeah. But it's on the hook keeper, and there's no, there's no slack. I mean, there's slack here. Like yeah. there, there's there's no uh, tension on the rod. But that's how you can take care of. It. And then spray them off with the water hose. Yeah. Look at your look at your guides. Um, some people are like, man, it's all rusted. No, it's not rusted. That's just junk. Like you've got gunk around that eye that's built up over time because you never clean or spray off your rods. Treat your rods the same way you do your reels. Go go through and wipe them down twice a year. Some guys do it three times a year, four times a year. Wipe off your guides, inspect your trip. rod. Yeah, inspect your rod. Just spray it with the water hose real quick. You know, get get all that sediment and everything off of it. All right, we're gonna get to some user questions here or listener questions. So Don Solomon, uh, he he asked two questions, but they both mean the same thing. Define higher end, please. And what he means is higher end production. So when it comes to building rods, um, you know, obviously you do have a choice with custom builds. You have probably what would be considered a production run type rod that you could build as a custom rod, and that's probably production run. As a custom rod, it's probably just going to be like your grandmother's name on, you know, a, a, a 
the butt of a rod or something like that. Um, and then your higher end, define higher end. Um, I think for, for like for a, a rod that's built, you know that you're going to, I'm going to spine the blank. So I'm going to make sure that the rod is built how it should be to where when it's under a look, whenever a rod is under load, that, that blank is going to turn to a certain position because that's where it wants to go when it's under a load. So I'm going to, you know, a custom rod builder is going to spine it, find out, you know, set it up, whether it's a casting or a spinning rod. Um, when they put the guides on there, I always do what's called a static load test. So I go ahead, I put the guides on and then I put a five pound weight. I lock the rod down, put a five pound weight, bend it at 90 degrees. And then I look at the, the guide placement to make sure that the line is going with the curve of the blank. So if you look at my rods, like the, the guides are never equally spaced. They're always around the bend of the rod a little bit closer because I'm trying to keep that line as close to, but not touching that blank. But not touching. Yes. Yeah, so I keep in the, in the line of the blank. Now hey, I, that, that brings up a question. Now, I'm sorry to, to stop you right quick. That's all right. Um, a friend of mine was asking me about a production run rod from Daiwa the other day. And we found the rod and what its new name was. And it's the same exact thing as this, the ARD or AIRD that he had. And now it's called something else. Um, and they went from eight guides to 10 guides. Why? Probably a different blank. Yeah. Yeah. Because if, uh, well, it could be a number. It it had the same blank. If they, like, like if you go with a smaller guide, like I normally, I use around like a 4.5 millimeter guide. Mm -hmm. So the line, the guides are lower. So I have to put more guides to keep that line up off the blank. That's probably what it was. Cause that's where, that's like the direction that most rod builders are taking. If I went, if I went with a six millimeter, it sits higher. The frame is higher. So then I can put less guides guides. to keep it. Yeah. So good um, point. Good point. Okay, I sorry sorry to cut you off. Uh, did you have more that you wanted to add to that last question? Uh, no, and this you know they talk about the high end production rods. I mean, then you just start to get in, like you said, like the titanium guides. Mm-hmm. You know, the super carbon fiber. Rod. Yeah, yeah, like the. I mean, you're looking basically like from you go from like a Mojo Bass or the Mojo Inshore to like the Legend Extreme, where they're using, like I said, the high end carbon or the high end modulus and titanium and all that. To me, it's it's like two hundred, two hundred fifty dollars plus. That to me, that's your higher end. Yeah. That's your higher end um, production custom. rods. Yeah, that, production well, that's rods. your higher end production. So me as a custom builder, I want to be able to offer them the same experience as they would have with those higher end um, production rods. I mean, it, 150, 179, you're kind of getting into the higher end stuff. Um, but, you know, to me, 200, 250, that's going to be your high, higher end. I mean, you could get a $450 production rod, $500 production rod out there. Um, and then, like Drew said, it's the attention to detail. Like for mine, I always put on my single foot guides, I always put a locking wrap or two locking wraps on them. And that's just to keep the guide from popping. You know, you'll see rods where the guide just comes out from underneath the wraps and the epoxy. And just doing locking wraps keeps them from doing that. And, you know, some builders do. Some builders don't. It's just. That's- you, said five, you said $500 rods. Are you talking about Sarge? 
I mean, there's Sarge. <laughs> there's 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 various ones out there. Yeah, St. Yeah, Croix, I think. They're top of the line now for freshwaters. Probably up around 650 bucks. Jeez yep. Louise. Yep. All right, so since since you guys are, are talking about it, yes, absolutely. What's the normal price range for custom rods? It, it's it's basically the the pricing uh, the pricing that the the builder does. Not all builders do do the same. Um, for me, mine's a flat rate hundred dollars. Parts plus a hundred dollars is what I is what I charge for a rod. Um, now, what's your what's your cheapest custom though? Like if I say I want to buy a custom rod for you, I just want the basic one that you do. I mean, what about what are you looking at? Two hundred dollars. Yeah. See, there you go. And then like, if you like, and then it, and then really, like I said before, it's all what you want to do and what you want to pay for. Because if I start doing custom, you know, it, custom color inlays, you know, I charge more for inlays. I charge more for butt wraps. I turn custom wood handles, so I charge for custom wood handles, custom cork handles, everything. You know, with with custom comes cash. Just remember that. So you know, but. Normally, like in my pricing, you get you, know, you can pick from eighty different colors of, of line or of, of wrapping. Um, you can pick what kind of handle you want, as far as like cork, wind, EVA, or carbon fiber. Um, you know, I just kind of there's there's certain things you can do at that price range. You know, options that you can pick. But then, if you want to go above and beyond, like I said, if you want to go up from alkanite inserts to um, silicone carb or carbide inserts or whatever that you know then then it's basically it's just the parts and then i just add the hundred dollars on you know to, to that so yeah me i'm not i'm not gonna sell you a custom rod for less than 250 that's my base because i know that the parts that i can put on a 250 dollar rod if i'm doing basic wraps name decal I mean EVA or foam grip, um, you know I'm I'm doing the hook keeper. I'm doing you know everything that you could normally get on a rod, but for 250 bucks, I'm confident that that sucker will perform. Now if you want to go lower and you're you're like, hey man, can you build me one for 150? I'm like I can. But I don't. I, I'm telling you, I don't know about the performance of it because you're using some some of the lower quality components. Yeah, I'm gonna so, have to step down on your blank quality. I'm gonna have to step exactly. down on your quality. Yes. I mean, I mean, because your grips in your real seat, your grips in your real seat, unless you're using carbon fiber, um, you can get into some higher dollar cork. You know, depending on the grade of it and things like that. But basically, your grips in your real seat are going to be about the same depending on, you know, what you use. But the guide and the blank and the tip top and then the decorative work is really what's going to drive your yeah. price. Um, and for me, 250 will get you into the basic level and it will give you something that you'll grab and you'll go, man, this does not feel like something off the shelf. And it, you'll you'll feel you'll feel good about that rod, but I mean it could go up to four hundred dollars, five hundred dollars, depending on how light you want that sucker and what type of guides you want, or you may want some uh, a, a, a guide wrap. Like I, I I did a wrap on Jessica's rod, and I I haven't been really posting it 
on Facebook because I don't know if I want to do it again because it took me eight hours to do this wrap um, of these fish, little little fish, all all up and down her rod. Um, so it, it really you're you're paying for the materials, but you're also paying for the time. Like Robert was saying, like I don't know if he he grinds his guide foots or anything at all, but yeah. you know, getting the guide foots just right, grinded down so there's not a big bump. That way, you know, you have a smooth transition and your finish soaks into the threads better, and you get a better, you know, you you get better contact with the blank and everything. Spining them, you know, finding the spine on there, getting the grips just right. There's a lot that goes into it that you're you're paying a little bit for the expertise but i mean really and truly you're mainly paying for the components or the decoration the decorative stuff because all that stuff takes time and for every rod builder it's going to be different how one guy that builds 20 rods a freaking week and all he's doing is putting your name on it with the cricket and then letting you choose uh two colors the way he's building those rods is completely different than the way I think me or Robert is going to build our rods. He may be cheaper. He may be cheaper by 30, 40, 50 bucks. We may be using some of the same materials, but you ain't getting the same attention to detail. So here's the deal. You've, your, your client has identified you as being his rod builder. You guys choose the blank. You choose the action. You choose the components. You settle on a price. Now he's ready to do the deed. Two questions here. He paying you up front or at the end? And how long is it going to take? I take, I require a $100 deposit up front. And then what I do is I tell you, like Chris, if you, you were buying a rod, I require, after we settle on everything, you know, take a hundred dollar deposit, and I would tell you when I get ready to order the parts, I'm going to contact you again. And if you say you're still interested in the rod, you know, once I order the parts, it's non-refundable. Up until then, if you change your mind, I give you your money back. And then I build the rod, and then you just basically pay the balance on delivery. Um, and as how long does it take to build? Like I said, I don't do this for a living. This is a hobby, more or less, for me. So once I get the parts in hand, it takes me about a week. Um, I can. You know, do it. I can do it in a week because the way I do my epoxy is probably archaic to other people, but it just takes a long time for the way I do it. Um. Rob, Robert, I think me and you could open a rod building. We could be partners, like because yeah. everything that you're saying, I'm doing the exact same way that you're doing. I mean, yeah. well, that, doesn't, when you were that talk- doesn't make a good partnership, though. You usually need to have one and the other. Well, no, because I know that me and him will be putting out quality stuff. Like you, we need somebody like you to do something crazy within the within the 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 working relationship here. But yeah. I know I know our quality is going to be the same. Even when you're talking about the static testing, the five pound weight, getting the guide trained correctly, like I'm doing the exact same stuff that you're doing, and I I love to hear that because there's a lot of rod builders that give other rod builders a bad name because they are not doing that type of stuff. Oh yeah, and when I. When I first got into it, like, you know, I would take my rods to get repaired at a local place here in town and I would get them back. And it's like, I couldn't believe, you know, the epoxy that they've, they've done. And so, you know, I'm not, I'm not tooting my horn, but I think my rods are, their quality is really good. But, um, 
yeah, I don't ask for the money up front just because, you know, sometimes, like I said, I work, you know, I may have to go travel for work. So I, I normally tell people it's 30 days average from the time I get the parts until you get, you get the rod. Uh -huh. But, you know, also, like I said, I have a regular job. So be mindful, you know, and then I just stay in contact with the customer and I'm sending pictures, you know, when I put the handle on, I'll send them a picture. And when I start wrapping it, when I do the, uh, generally the first, the wraps on the handle, cause that's where I'll get my designs. I'll send them a picture and, you know, say, Hey, is this what you had in mind or whatever? And so I, I'm, to I'm constantly updating them as I'm going through the process. And then, you know, like I said, just give them an invoice at the end and, and go from there. No. I do it Ruth? the exact same way. How I long take, is it taking you? Well, I do, um, just to get back to the money stuff, I do, if you're going to buy a rod from Turner Rodco, um, half up front, half on delivery. I mean, so if you got a $250 rod, 125 125 Um and, and that protects me. If you decide you don't want it or you ghost me, hey, I, I've, I've, probably paid for all the components that that i just put into this rod and i order or you can at least sell it and get your money back exactly or you know i don't even order it i order it once i get your deposit and at, most of the time what i'll do is i'll order it first make sure there's no back orders on any of the components you want and then i'll take your deposit um but from start to finish that's that that's kind of two different things if i don't have a single rod that i have to build and you come to me and you you say, all right, here's all your stuff. You've got everything. Let's build your let's build a rod. Day one is going to be you're going to have to ream out all your handles. You're going to have to get everything set up. Then you're going to have to glue it. And then I let my glue set overnight. Like I'm not I'm not in that much of a hurry. I put it in the in the rack and I let the glue sit. So that's one day is just doing your grips, doing your handles. Day two, I'm like Robert. I start on the butt wrap. I'll do the butt wrap the way that I want it, and then I'll send you a picture. And sometimes I'm doing like different colors. I'll do the left side of the butt wrap one color, the right side of it another variant, and I'll send you a picture. And I'm like, hey, man, you like A or B better? They want B? Okay, so then we go with B. So I'll, I'll, I'll do that, and then I'll wrap the guides after I do that. And then the epoxy goes on. I like to have a under wrap of thread before I put my sticker on, before I put my decal on, because it makes it pop a little more because I build a lot on natural um, or slate colored, you know, just kind of looks like charcoal, looks like it's just the natural graphite. Um, so I will actually have to put one coat of epoxy on whenever I do that. So that's day that's day two. Now, my rods are getting three coats of epoxy, and I'm doing 24 hours between each one. So you're looking at, you know, five days from start to finish, but that doesn't mean I can't work on more than one rod. I mean, I, can, I could probably pump out three in a week, four in a week, but I don't like working on more than one at a time because I want my full attention and focus to be on that one rod that I'm building because whenever I hand it to you, the customer is not seeing any of those other rods at the shop. They're seeing the one that you're handing to them. And I want them to know that my full attention was on that rod while I was building it shop. and all the details. Drew's yes. garage. Yes. Oh, no. 
The run room. It's a three car. It's a three car, brother. It's a three car. I got an air conditioner now. But you know, you kind of like mine. It's this is the Osprey Rods Worldwide Headquarters. Exactly. The so. shop. The rod <laughs> shop, man. All right, guys. So a um, couple more questions, and then we're going to go ahead and end this. That was pretty much the gist of our listeners' questions. But but right. if anybody wants to buy one or anybody wants to get a new build in, I like to keep like three or four in the barrel. So it's usually a month, month and a half wait. Like that that's how long the waiting list is. Right now That's how I've long got, the waiting list is. Yeah, I've got one on the rod bench right now and I have three that I need to build. Once I finish this one, I'll start, you know, putting some more stuff out there and I'll usually get two or three builds. So a month and a half. Rob. Yeah. You still signing your rods? Um, I initial and number every rod I built. Hey, Drew, are you doing that? For my friends that have bought a rod, there are things written underneath the grips that nobody will probably ever see. But there's a few that I've built for for people that have personal you're, you're messages. Never, You'll never, you'll never build a rod for me because you'll probably put some damn juju on that shit. No, nope, nobody be- will ever see. Colin, <laughs> Colin Elliott, I know he was watching earlier, and Abel, um, I actually wrote some stuff under theirs, and I'm not going to tell them what I wrote or anything, but uh, if they ever break their, their rod or something, then we can rip it off and have a joke about it. But there's some right. stuff written underneath their, their handles. Last question of the evening then i want you guys to go ahead and uh lay it all out on the line as far as where people can find you um where's your social media at and uh how they get in contact with you to buy a rod all right in a no holds barred match who wins the osprey or the heron Ooh, i don't know I don't know. The the heron has the size advantage. (laughs) Rob's over there going, dude. The Osprey's pretty vicious, though. Yeah, look at them talons. I know, I know. Uh, We call it a draw. We're going to call it a draw. All right. All right. Okay, guys, go ahead. We both identify as a winner. How about that? (laughs) We can do that now. We can just identify as winners. That's right. <laughs> yeah, these days you sure can. All right, Rob, tell these folks where they can find you and uh, how to contact you if they want to have a rod built by Osprey. All right, you can. Uh, I'm on Facebook at Osprey Rods, Instagram Osprey Rods. Um, my website is osprey-rods.com. Um, since I moved a couple months ago and live up on the mountain, I have become a social media hermit. I work from home. I don't go to town except to go to the feed store to get stuff to feed my deer. So um, I do, like I said, I post from time to time. But He's uh, lying. He's, you know what he's posting? He's posting pictures of this badass mountainscape. The mountain, oh, the, dude, the view in the back is a million dollars. But, uh, yeah, you can find me, like I said, social media and uh, osprey-rods.com. Um, I'll get back to like I said, I've been moving, so unfortunately I've been working more than I've been fishing. So I'm going to have to remedy that once uh, this Alabama heat breaks. Alabama heat? Oh, come on now. Come on now. Get I haven't here. gotten get these down guys down, down to Texas us. yet. I, I've been trying to get them down here. It's the air you can wear up here for sure. <laughs> Shit, we, we walk outside into hot soup. That's what it feels <laughs> like here. It's just soup. 
All right, Drew, where can these guys find you? Uh, check out Turner Rodco, Facebook, Instagram. Um, I have some apparel out now. I know you guys have seen the hats before, but I have some apparel available. The links are there. You can pre-order the hooded performance shirts. Um, there are select long sleeve performance shirts that are available right now uh, in select sizes. It's just like with getting the uh, components right now. The companies are having trouble getting blanks for apparel to print on right now. So those should be, if you pre-order, those should be available the second week of September, I believe. Um, there's buffs on there from Turner Rodco. All of the kids are available in different uh, colors. So if you want to get your kid a performance, we even did a bright, bright neon yellow. So if you want to... Them highlighter shirt? Highlighter. Highlighter yellow for the kids. So if you throw that sucker on them, you will be able to find little Tommy at the playground because you will see the beautiful blue heron and a highlighter shirt. Um, but those are available there. If you want to get in touch with me, I've been running everything for Turner Rodco just off of social media. Um, I am as busy as I would like to be with that as far as customs go. I do have some things coming in the pipeline for the production uh, rods. I mean, I was sending Chris some concepts yesterday of the Jalapeno Popper label that's going on there. Um, so those are really and truly, they're, they're going to be ready really really soon but if you want to get with me hit me up uh turner rodka or just find drew turner on facebook send me a message let's talk about the the rod man if you want to get a custom i'm going to ask you a bunch of questions and you may not know the answer to and if you just want to have a, a texas a&m rod just say hey drew i'm fishing soft plastics i want a texas a&m rod build me one you'll never catch it. a single fish though. i can do it oh they're out there, man. They're out there. I've got picks. I've got picks to prove it from from customers. How, how are them Bama rods doing, man? Uh, well, you know, I mean, they're popular. Alabama, Auburn, you, Tennessee. You, you, yeah, I was about to say, you do you uh, build more Auburn rods or more Bama rods? Uh, I've built more Alabama, Alabama rods, yeah. It's Alabama, Auburn, and then Tennessee, and then I built a couple of different, you know, other. I built a Michigan rod for someone. So, um, yeah, uh, just just one other thing to throw out there. You know, I know not all you got, not everybody is is around Alabama or Texas, but you know, look up your local rod builders. You know, if even like a lot of my work is repair work, man. Like if you have a rod you like, you know, you break a break a guide on it, you don't have to throw it away. I mean, you know, a lot of people just trash it or whatever, you know, get a hold of your local rod smith and, you know, you can get that rod repaired. I've, I've rebuilt rods. I've uh, rebuilt a vintage 1960 boat rod and, you know, redid the wooden, it had teak wood handles and everything. So, you know, stripped it down. Um, it's a lot more, most, all your rod builders, it's a lot more than just building a custom rod. Like I said, if you have a sentimental rod, you know, I, I redid an old fly rod for someone whose father had passed away, and it was just a wall hanger, but it was just a matter of cleaning it up and stuff. So, you know, hit up your local rod smith and, you know, say, hmm. don't throw those old a, rods away, man. I got a couple old Fenwicks. I got a I got a 13-foot Garcia back here that belonged to my dad. When he passed away, I got it, and it was in rough shape, and I completely tore it down, rebuilt it. A couple it. of Fenwicks I might uh -huh. need to get it redone. You know, yeah. you brought up – 
you brought up something I was going to actually end this uh, episode on, and that is um, listeners and Facebook friends, um, always remember to shop small, shop local, support your small business owners, support, support your local um, smiths, whether it be uh, gunsmiths, rodsmiths, um, blacksmiths. <laughs> support those guys, okay? Um, and don't ask right for now. a discount. Yeah, don't don't go asking for. <laughs> don't discount. ask your friends for a discount, man. Or, pay pay your friends. Or Jesus. to be pro staff. Yeah, pay yeah. your friends, Jesus. Um, it, it's right now. It goes a long way, further than it ever used to. So mm-hmm. um, keep that in mind. And with that, guys, we're going to end this show. This was a fantastic episode. Uh, we got to talk to two really great rod builders along the Gulf Coast. I appreciate both of y'all for coming on here. Um, Drew, I get to look at your face at least once every two weeks. Um, So thank you for gracing us with your presence. Uh, Rob, your locks are looking fantastic. Thanks, Um, man. And we'll see you guys soon, all right? For the Paddles Playbook, I'm out of here. Adios. Peace.